Well, no, because the question we'd be asking is like, what are people into? You know, what are you into? Yeah. And then we just figure out what are people into? And then we just kind of just do a little more of that. Have you been able to rely on people to give you good answers to that question that were true? Well, no, that's why you, you don't use their answers. That's why you use machine learning. You use yeah. Because machines don't have souls. <laughs> Scotch. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 297 of Coffee with Butterscotch, the game dev comedy podcast, Butterscotch Shenanigans. I'm Seth and I'm the games programmer. I'm Adam and I'm not that. I'm Sam, and I'm wearing all denim. And this is the show where we talk about life, business, and working in the games industry. Today is February 5th, 2021. Dunk on everyone. Before we get started, we have a warning. There's going to be profanity on this show. We'd also like to thank our supporters over at moneygrab.bscotch.net. They went there, and then we grabbed their money. It was nice. Yeah. Uh, All right, so we got a few things to talk about this week. I think the big one, the big one, is that we did a jam. We did. For the first time in 10 years. Since Goop, since Fields of Goop. Is that right? Yeah, which was two summers We ago. slumbered for 10,000 years. <laughs> and now we've emerged to jam. Yeah. So what did we do? Well, we kind of did a bunch of different things. So we had... Uh, some of the members of the team doing sort of like personal jam projects. Um, some people were like working on writing things. We, like we had a wide range of activities. I guess it's an interesting approach, right? Because what we said is like we we love the atmosphere of a jam, the focused nature of it, the sort of uh, the sort of nothing else matters except for whatever this thing is right now. And but we also recognize that we don't, as a company, want to force people to work for 40 hours over the weekend if they're not Mm -hmm. jazzed up about something. Yeah. So it was fully opt in to do it at all and then fully opt in on what you do. Yeah. And not only that, but only, uh, only a a portion of the people in the studio actually make games and like, like making games as like a thing just to do on a 48 hour whim. You know? (laughs) So So the basic rule for us was like, if you, if you want to participate, you basically choose a thing, anything, that it could be a personal project, um, could be working on a side craft, could be working on your own game, which is I think what uh, Jordan ended up doing. Mm-hmm. And and then uh, everybody who is participating, the whole idea was just that uh, Friday is an off day then. So you take Friday off and then take the whole weekend working on that thing and everyone kind of hanging out um, starting on Friday at 5 p.m. So – I think, I mean, from a studio approach, it's a, that's weird. What do you think about that? I didn't actually think about it until we were just started talking about it. But the fact that we're like, yeah, take a day off and then work on your own projects over the weekend uh, with the whole crew, you know? Well, um, we, but we also, we framed it as if you aren't going to do the jam, then go ahead and, you know, work mm-hmm. on Friday and then just take the weekend like normal. But if you're doing the jam, then you get Friday off. And then we'll all be jamming together. But it's really that you need so. Friday off because you need, <laughs> you need, <laughs> you need that break. Yeah. And we didn't take Monday off afterwards. So like we just kind of rolled right from the jam into the work week. Yeah. Although so. for, uh, so I guess we, we haven't gotten into the jam yet, but like we should just get into it. Um, get in there, Adam. From, from the, uh, the experience was very different because, because the last time we jammed in Goop, actually yeah, in Goop Legacy days, uh, I was fields also working on game days. stuff, right? And the group, fields, fields of, of group days. Sorry, yeah, fields of group. Yeah. Uh, I was also because because that was the web stuff that we needed to build our you know MMO thing. Um, so I was like, you know, I was 
I was aggressively part of the team in a bottleneck, and so there was that kind of experience of it, right? The time before that, though, I built the podcast page that we have today, mm. right? So wasn't touching games, just doing other stuff. And but both of those actually felt really similar in terms of the intensity of the experience, the the kind of exhaustion that came out of the whole thing. And in both cases, I just like felt great afterwards, but also was kind of just wiped, right? Uh, this time felt really different. And I think I think doing because what I was the, the the idea of the jam is a two parter, right? One is one is to not do other things, have that be fine, and then just focus on the one thing for an extended period of time, so you can just get really into it, right? But the other thing is the social experience of being around other people who are doing the same thing. So that that piece of it to me was just kind of missing this time because yeah. doing it remotely when everyone's working on different projects, mm-hmm. right? made it so that like it just didn't really it was just too hard to kind of have the social part really like feel like a core part of it and so it mostly felt like I was on my own but the weird consequence of that was was so I felt like I was missing something that's important to a jam um but also I ended up being less tired afterwards right yeah mm-hmm. uh, like I didn't work any less than I normally do for a jam I was like it was I put in a whole like you know 18 hours of work or whatever um and uh but then just like Monday rolled around and I was just like, I just got up like a normal Monday and it seemed like it didn't seem like anything. Like my tense of time was messed up, right? But I didn't, I didn't have the exhaustion that I normally get from a jam. And so I was trying to figure out what to make of, of that whole that whole. Well, I, I would say I, I know that I personally put in a lot less time yeah. than normal because we I think we worked the first night uh, 5 p.m. to like 9.30 p.m. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then the next day it was like 9 a.m. To nine thirty PM, and then Sunday was nine AM to four. So, so normally, you know, we're staying up till eleven at night and like getting up at seven or eight the next morning, and just I don't know. I think that, that hasn't been know. true for a while. I don't think. I think the last couple of jams were more chill for for me. It has okay, uh, sure. usually, but yeah. but uh, yeah, the, the the pressure was less into the the atmosphere was a lot less intense. I think, but because of the lack of in person. Yeah, yeah but I'm wondering how much of it is the lack of in person versus. The fact that it has been a more, it's been a year and a half, right, since the last jam, uh, yeah, and things have changed a lot uh, in terms of how we approach things, how we solve problems, what we care about, what we're worried about, right, and also the approach that you two took for this jam was, uh, let's make a thing that's probably that's literally going to be bad, right? We always say that in the other jams, but we're actually we're trying to make something good, right? Because mm-hmm. we're trying to use, we're trying to build on top of all of the experience that we have, and stay kind of within our wheelhouse and extend a bit. And for this jam, you guys were specifically saying, let's do something we don't know how to do. And I, I have to imagine that that completely changes the vibe of the thing because you're basically going in thinking like you don't, you have no clue what you could possibly end up with. And so there's no pressure to end up with anything particularly yeah. good or – Well, let's, let's talk extensive. about that. Let's talk about what we, what we did, what, what Sam and I did. Mm-hmm. So we said we're going to use uh, Unity uh, to, to build the game and Sam was going to do 3D modeling. So I haven't touched Unity really in uh, like eight or nine years. Um, I worked with Unity in the last uh, company that we were in before we started uh, Butterscotch, um, and that that's been it. But I was a, I was part of a team of five programmers also, so I I hadn't really done much in the way of like actually just like building a game in Unity. I've worked on it. Yeah, you worked on an existing game, which is a very different thing. Yeah. Um. So so there was that a lot of rust there uh, a lot of a lot of things have changed in the in the platform, you know, in eight or nine years. Um, 
And then Sam, I think your 3D modeling experience is sparse. <laughs> I had done, I had done, uh, I think two and a half hours of tutorials, maybe a year and a half ago. Uh, I made a bunny face. That was literally it. Yep. Yep. And so, <laughs> yep. yeah. Um, so we came into this basically saying, um, rather than using tools and techniques that we have been working with for forever, let's try to use this jam to change the way we think about things by exploring a completely new domain and just kind of seeing what happens over there. Mm-hmm. Um, cause it's a, it's a total unknown, right? So, uh, we did end up spending probably a third of the jam reading documentation and watching YouTube tutorials. Mm-hmm. Yeah, probably. <laughs> well, I think, I think, uh, it, you know, counter to, to Adam feeling very well rested, despite the fact that, like said the same, we're putting in essentially like just being a normal person hours, like just being awake and then going to bed at the same time. Yeah. Uh, I was super tired on, mm-hmm. uh, on Friday and Saturday. Um, and then still on Sunday, but on Sunday I had that sort of, you know, you get the enjoyment of actually having finished the dang thing. Yeah, because um, the, the mental overhead required to be not applying expertise, which is learning. fluency, because fluency is cheap, right? It doesn't cost you much to use fluency, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. But instead you're trying to do things like you, there, there wasn't a moment where you knew what you were doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, yeah, even simple stuff, I'd be like, okay, I want to play a sound here and then – you know, one thing I know that in Game Maker, you you add the sound to the project, and then you use the 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 line of code audio play sound, and you can and it and it plays. It's mm-hmm. two steps. You're done now. Congratulations, you played the sound. Uh, in Unity, there's like a nine step process where you need like emitters and listeners, and you you know you got to set up a class in C sharp. Like there's a whole there's a whole fucking library of information you need to know to get a sound playing. Um, and that's true of kind of everything in, in unity. Um, and so and it, you know, stuff, and it makes a kind of sense, right? Cause like, unlike in a 2d game, it's like that sound has to come somewhere. from some random place in 3d space. Right? Yeah. Like it's, it's got a, it's, it's just like everything is just more complicated. Yeah. Um, everything like we always joked about in the past, like that extra D, you know, Oh, it's, fuck you up real good. It's a, it's a tough one, right? Two D, no problem. You get the extra G in there, and then you're it's over. Um, so, uh, I I would say though, what we what I felt from the jam was, even though we were we were using tools that we that we had no you know expertise in to put it lightly, um, it was still a lot of fun, and we still actually came out of it with a game. Mm-hmm. Uh, we made we made a, a sort of a spiritual sequel to Do You Even Lift, which was our elevator sim. Did you put it up on Itch like, or is it just uh, no? Okay, it's, could, it's just we we could uh, maybe. <laughs> uh, that's the whole point of the Itch page. That's where mm-hmm. that's where our our garbage stuff goes. You know? Yeah. Um, and so it it did the thing that jams always do to me, which is after the jam. There's some kind of big moment where you're like, dang, I have learned something important about myself or about mm-hmm. the world or whatever. Um, and in this case, I think Sam and I both had the exact same reaction to it, which is, how is it the case that working in this tool that we are bad at, making a game that we don't actually care about, we were having a lot more fun and felt like we were getting more done than what we were doing in our normal production on our day-to-day 
work, mm-hmm. right? Working on our normal game, Crash Lands 2. So those feelings where you're like, that weekend was fun. How come the rest of my life isn't like that? You know, yeah. what's this about? So we, so we kind of took that to heart and we sat down on Monday right after the jam and we kind of talked through like, okay, what's going on here? What does this mean? How, how do we make our normal game production feel closer to, you know, how it felt to work on this weird thing over the weekend? Um, and I think we kind of realized, you know, a couple things like one is that because we've transitioned to this remote work thing, we've allowed ourselves to become very siloed. So we have a tendency to just kind of hang out in our own discord channels and work separately. Mm-hmm. Um, but during the jam, we were just on a video call and screen sharing the entire time. So, uh, so I ended up setting up like a second monitor after the jam so that I could just always see what's going on on Sam's screen while he's doing his art working on Crashlands, And he's also watching my screen uh, so that he can, at any time I like am testing a feature or something, he can just kind of see it out of his periphery. Um, and already just doing that this week has led to a bunch of breakthroughs in Crashlands 2 because we can just kind of see what's going on and then somebody will have an idea. Mm-hmm. And they'll be like, oh, what if we did something like this? And suddenly, boom, the game is dramatically yeah. better. And the best right? example of this actually is there's this, been this thorny visual problem that we've been trying to solve since since the inception of the game, which was, hey, you know, Crashlands, is a, it is sort of that top-down-ish, uh, it's a 2D game. Um but how can we get some fake perspective in here? So the whole, so moving through the world just feels a little bit more dynamic. And Seth and I had gone through, I don't know, like six different possible ways to do it. Every single one of them had weird issues or produced, um, produced some visual sort of nonsense, or it was just a performance hit that was so big that we couldn't manage it. Yeah. Uh, and then, but we ended up, one of them, we ended up never actually trying because we thought it would just sort of off the cuff be too weird. But then, uh, during implementation of some range projectiles yesterday, Adam was lob, yeah, lobbed in range projectiles. Mm-hmm. Adam was just hanging out in the stream, and he was like, "Oh, but what if they like got smaller as they went away from you and, and bigger as they came towards you?" Mm-hmm. And of course, our initial response it wasn't, was like, towards you. It's actually towards up us. versus down, right? Which yeah. we're trying to make feel like it's towards you versus away from mm-hmm. you. Yeah. yeah, and so and this is actually very similar to one of the ideas that we had had about how to manage or how to try to get that depth effect. Uh, very, very early on. But at the time we were like, I mean, that makes sense. That's like kind of, it's definitely going to look real weird. And we even had the same response when Adam was like, yeah, what if we did this? And both Seth and I were like, well, it'll look really weird, but I mean, how fast would it be? And Seth's like, oh, it's like I'll prototype it. It's so, minutes. It's like literally five minutes. And then we saw it and we we're like, that looks cool as fuck. And we're like, actually, yeah, let's put awesome. it on everything. And we did. And now we have this really fun, slight kind of, uh, almost parallax effect going on. As it is a it. it's a parallax effect. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And so, well, and then, but also, we discovered that we needed to apply it differently to different things, right? So, like for the for the objects, the static objects out in the world, they actually need to shrink in both directions once they depart from the middle. But a projectile needs to grow as it comes towards you and mm-hmm. shrink as it goes away. And so, we have like two completely conflicting ideas of perspective happening, right? But, but it looks cool. It looks really cool. And it really <laughs> works. And it's that it's that constant reminder. That uh, that game physics is a lie, right? It's the same oh, idea. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's the same as as we we talked a lot in the past about how people don't understand randomness, right? And you have to make if you want somebody to feel like something is random, you have to make it less random, right? Because by putting rules on it, by putting rules like, on like it, because, no repeats or something yeah, no repeats like and that. that kind of stuff. Because when people yeah. see that stuff, otherwise, like, and, and I know, like, I actually know this from what I use my. Uh, my authenticator app, you know, with like the, the numbers, like the six digits that come up. 
just constantly I'm seeing patterns there. I'm like, this can't be like, I'll see, I'll see like 600 appear. I'm like, that's too much of a number. I don't like this. <laughs> and uh, yeah, but it I just, know this number. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or I'll see, I'll, I'll see like two of my, of my, uh, of my numbers at the same time. will have like one of the three digits pairs in common, right? Or whatever. And it like freaks me out every time a little bit. And even though I know <laughs> that that's how it's supposed to behave. Yep. Uh, and then physics and games works the same way, especially in 2d games. Yeah. I mean, the general point Where, is like you, you have to yeah. do stuff in service of the actual entertainment of the game. It's not about reality. Mm-hmm. Like we're not here to make reality. It's not, we don't care literally yeah, at yeah. all about what's, what's real. But, and what's uh, not. Well, so, and the, so and the, the lies are actually more believable. And that's actually yes. the thing is that, is that, uh, it's not about consistency, right? It's, a. Uh, it's about consistency with the expectations of the person, right? And the expectations of the person do not reflect reality at all, and they don't have to be consistent. Mm-hmm. So that means you get that means you can't all. It's really hard to figure out what to do because that means if you find a rule set that seems to work, like applying parallax in a certain way, right? Uh, that same thing in a context where it is the same thing might need to be different now, mm-hmm. right? Yep, it's weird, just because of the context. But, I mean, so this is. This was one of the things we took home from the jam then was, was this idea of like, you never, you have to optimize for a little bit of chaos. You know, if everybody's totally siloed, and this is kind of something we talked about in the early days of, of switching over to remote work is trying to figure out how to find a balance between being isolated uh, versus like constantly seeing what other people are doing kind of a thing. And it's definitely the case that at this, especially at this phase of the game's development, yeah. Even like, so, you know, Adam wasn't doing anything with the game at that time. He was working on some web stuff and he was just hanging out. And he just kind of looked over as, as like Sam and I were iterating on these, on these projectiles. And Adam was like, what about, and it was actually specific. Of course, I hadn't been part of any of these prior conversations where they decided not to do these things. Right. So Mm -hmm. I was like, I was looking at Seth because he was like spinning in a circle, throwing lobbed projectiles. Right. And I just noticed that like every time he was throwing them behind him, it looked like he was still throwing them in front of himself, right? Because because there sense. wasn't, yeah, there was no sense. Like I could see where they landed, but like when they were in the air, because once and once they were lobbed, that's when it was obvious. When he was shooting straight ones, it's like they were obviously moving back, like you know, backwards and so yeah. on. But as soon as they were lobbed, I was like, I can't tell where these things are going. And like the obvious thing in my mind was just like, let's just change the Shrink size it. as they come towards the camera. I just like just yeah. do that. Yeah. And uh, and since I didn't have to, I didn't have that previous discussion where we were like, that can't work, you know, or it would suck. Mm-hmm. Then, then I got to throw yeah. the idea out again. And so, so we started, we started doing that. Um, and we also have decided to make a shift where previously, so we, we talked about how we did a lot of pre-production and pre-planning for Crash Ends 2. And as some of our listeners may know, you know, I gave a GDC talk called Designed by Chaos a few years back about how we made Crashlands 1. Where in Crashlands 1, we basically had like two sentences roughly that that vaguely described a, a, a direction that we were taking the game. And that was it. So whatever was going to happen on a day-to-day basis, we kind of didn't know until we like played the game and we were like, what's going on here? Like, what's wrong with this? What does this need? And how do we kind of like make it better? Um, so with Crashlands 2, we've kind of swung the pendulum too far in the other direction where we did a huge pre-production design document, which actually is super useful and, and gave us a lot of insight in, into what direction we're going. So instead of like two sentences, we have, you know, 30, 40 pages of, of stuff mm-hmm. to, with like, to think about. With art assets to help like guide how to think about yeah. it. With, mm-hmm. Yeah. There's 
So yeah. we, we know, so we have a, a stronger sense of direction. The problem is then we took that design document and we turned it into a plan, like yeah. an implementation plan to say like, okay, well, the here worst are, part of it was you didn't just turn it into like, here's step one of the plan. It was, here's like the next 10 steps. Yeah. It was, for, you know, first we're going to create this system, then this system, then this system, mm-hmm. like, because this has to build on this. Well, and it's blah, actually, blah. it's taking a milestone approach is what it is. It's literally a milestone yeah. approach, which is saying, okay, so, you know, here's where we're trying to go. Here's a good marker in the sand. Here's all the stuff that would be required to hit that thing. Uh, yeah. You know, let's go. Like, here, do so, those things specifically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what this has actually resulted in is we've had a tendency to punt. So we'll, we'll be playing the game. There's something obviously kind of like not right. Maybe like the water doesn't look good or the lighting is messed up or this like physics interaction is weird, right? And what we've been doing is then we would look at our roadmap and we're like, well, that's something that we will be addressing in patch 0.3 when we do this one thing. Mm -hmm. So that'll just sit for now, right? And the problem is then over the months, like the game has become increasingly less fun to work on and kind of harder to test because we're building more and more things on top of stuff that's not where we want it to be. And so we're, we feel like we're making decisions about the game in a, in a in, context, in the wrong context, in the wrong context. And so we take a step back and we're like, okay, we need to blend. We need to take, take this more concrete vision that we have, but mix that with our old style of, rapid iteration on the current state of the game and always optimize for having the current state of the game be really, really good. Mm-hmm. So whatever we do have in the game should be fun and engaging and interesting and useful. Uh, so that even ranges from like, if we need the ability to equip items, which we do know that we need that in Crash Nets 2, we don't need a fully fledged inventory system and equipment screen for all armor and weapons and trinkets and gadgets and whatever else, we just need the ability to equip the kinds of things that exist right now, mm-hmm. which may just be weapons or something, right? So so we can make a simple interface that does that, and now we can start engaging with that part of the game. Instead of saying, well, equipment comes in patch 0.6, so, that's, so we just can't deal with that. <laughs> uh, yeah, and so I, uh, it's felt a lot... It felt great, honestly, working on, on Crash Nets 2 this week. Um, it, felt, it feels like the progress has gone dramatically faster, and the game is, has moved. We've moved so many uh, like pain points, I would say, mm-hmm. uh, forward into a good spot where like they used to kind of just suck, or they didn't look good, you know, or whatever. Um, and we also, what did we do? We had like 150 things in our, in our ClickUp task list. Mm-hmm. And we just, we burned down like 70 or 80 of them. Yep. We're like, yeah, we're just not going to worry about these for now. We got like, let's focus on what the game is. Yeah. Well, I, think, it, I think, I think the, the thing we'd never had in the past was any, like it was a cl- really clear vision on design side of like where we're trying to go and what that, what that could mean. Um, I think the mistake we made was, was thinking that our overall like day to day process was incorrect. If that makes sense. Where it's like, yeah, really what we needed to do is plug that hole. And then more or less actually continue as we have in the past, uh, you know, the way we built Levelhead, the way we built Crashlands, which is this day-to-day iteration style. Um, but with the ability to then, once we hit a point where we're like, okay, cool, like what's the next thing we want to do to go be able to see, like really see the full scope of the project and be able to thoughtfully decide on what that next thing is that we want to add. Um, 
when it comes to these big systems and stuff like that. Yeah, it was yeah. more. It was more that uh, that the scope needed to be kind of worked out ahead of time. Yeah, because yeah, because yeah, like, exactly. crash because like, crash is basically. It, we didn't know what it was the whole time, right? So it had so as a consequence, it just had an ever growing scope. As we were like, this isn't there yet. Let's add this, you know, mm-hmm. and like, and that, and that's how it that's how it grew. Um, although we're in kind of a weird spot though, because on, on the one hand, I think this idea makes sense. We're you know working out the scope and, and the and the big picture and and kind of thinking through all of the systems that we expect to be in the game ahead of time is very helpful. But in the case of Crashlands Two, we're cheating. Because it's based off of Crashlands One, wherein we solved all these problems organically, uh, and I think it's a fair question to ask: is is how hard would it be to do this this approach um, with a brand new game, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, where you where you say we're going to make a new thing, but it's you know sure it's going to probably recycle some ideas that you've had in the past and so on, but it's going to be a new thing. Uh, so how do you can you? Can you really do that? Can you go? Can you do that from scratch and build I, a coherent th- vision? Yeah, and then still, like you know, underneath, like do the day to day, like try it out. If it doesn't work, change it. I think uh, you like still definitely can because I think I mean, even when I look at Crashlands Two, I mean, the reality is that the we've we've maintained I think the overall the overall feel and intention behind the original, but the core interaction in the game has changed significantly using this mm-hmm. uh, telegraph system for everything as opposed to just a single target stuff in a way that had so many ramifications across the board. That it's I, I I do think it's possible. I think as long as you can actually nail down what it is the core interactions are in your game, then you can start building realistically on top of that. I think the problem is if you yeah. if you stay vague about like what like in Diablo, for example, if you're like we're making a, a Diablo game, but you don't actually get into like how does the player use the controller to do the things? Weirdly enough, like that we've talked about in the podcast for that particular exercise of button mapping and like in your head playing it while holding a controller was one of the most important foundational pieces of this whole like thing because it actually allows you to make decisions about that base level. And if you make those decisions properly, I think you can start building on them relatively effectively. Yeah, I do think that the reality is probably that because in all these cases, you still have to be, for, for this approach where there isn't a explicit roadmap that you just assume is fine, that you then just like do the work and then it's done, right? If you're going to take this this uh, this more organic approach, then I think I think in the case of Crashlands Two, we just we do have this advantage because we already know 100%. what works and what we want to change and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think in all cases you have to have room for having the day to day work and the results of it because those are results that are based on a fast feedback loop of trying a thing, experimenting, coming up with a new idea based on the thing that you just did, how it feels, and so on. Um, that that has to feed back into the bigger picture, right? Yeah. So for us, for Crashlands 2, that is already happening, right? It is feeding back. It's just that the the impacts, even when they're big, don't really fundamentally change the thing, right? Versus uh, a game that, that you're working on from scratch. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I think it's just likely there that the ideas, that the plan just is going to conflict too hard with the reality of implementing the plan. So that while it's still useful, I think you have to expect for there to be a lot of feedback coming from the day-to-day work that really fundamentally changes absolutely the plan as you go. Yeah, it's basically it's like all both these systems are actually cross talking to each other all the time, right? Yeah. Um, oh yeah, yeah. And I think too, one of the interesting things about this is there's been some aspects of the pre planning that have been incredibly useful, yeah. like the controller mapping thing. And, and for me, it's also been this idea of deciding where we're going to put our focus. So one of the things we just we decided early was like this game has to look amazing. Yeah. 
it can't just look good. Mm-hmm. We've, I feel like we've done a pretty good job of making games that look good, but we want to make a game that looks just fucking great. Yeah. And that know? is the number one priority actually. Yeah. Honestly. And, and pre deciding some of these pillars of, of where the, the focus is. Um, and we've also talked about things like one of our beeves with original crash ends was how uniform many things were. Right, like every creature is a pet. Every creature produces one item for you when you feed it. Mm-hmm. Every creature has a nest and an egg. Right, a three three types, etc. Um, which meant that, like, once you kind of like got creatures, then every new creature you saw was just part of a, of a pattern. Yep, and there wasn't there wasn't room for new stuff. Yeah, you weren't so, you weren't part of a world. You were part of a. Of a system, of, of a, a game. Of a visible you know? system, a visible yeah. system. Yeah, and so so another sort of pillar that we've tried to tried to keep reinforcing for Crash Ends 2 is to be less rigid with systems and allow room for lots of interesting variation and flexibility with things so that you don't always know what to expect when you see a new thing, right? Um, and so the, the thing is that we needed to make like a 40-page document before we realized how important that was. You know, mm-hmm. as we were talking through things, and now that we have that little nugget of an idea, uh, we don't need to go back and keep consulting that forty-page document, you know, for a lot of decisions because we've boiled the most important thing that we got from it, you know, down to this. Mm-hmm. Um, but when it comes to controller button mappings, we definitely need to consult it because it's all right there, right? <laughs> yeah. So, so there, there's a lot of different use cases that you get out of making one of these big documents. Some are some are high level, some are very specific and, and low level. Um, yeah, well, I think like, part of it too is that you you need to know ahead of time what the game is for, what it's trying to accomplish, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And and get those pillars right, and those are the things that probably aren't shouldn't be allowed to change, and and because. It is the case, like, as you discover stuff, as you come up with ideas, like, you're always going to be kind of chafing against a plan, right? So, like, for for Crash Lands 2, as we're coming up with new stuff, every once in a while we're going to hit a point where we're like, this isn't very Crash Lands-y. You know, like, like I love this idea, but it isn't very Crash Lands-y. Like, should we? You know? Mm-hmm. I mean, like, it's like, okay, we need to go, we have to go really think about this. Like, is this wise? Because if we depart too much, it's just not Crash Lands 2, right? Uh, or if we, if we are designing all these really cool new systems... That allow for lots of complexity and kind of intricacy, and then uh, and then more ways for you to interact with the world. And the question is, well, now you have to interact with the world in more ways because that's how the world works, right? So now we're departing from sort of the. Are we, so now the question is, are we departing too much from the original simplicity of Crashlands? Right? Was that was that an important fundamental component of what made Crashlands yep. what it was? And so we had this kind of constant battle of like, how do we bring in the new ideas and the cool new stuff? Stay true to the old thing, um, and and try to figure out like what was important about original Crashlands. What did what made it what it was? What made it successful? While recognizing the business context that this game's going to land in, right? Yeah, because the original was more far more successful on mobile than any other platform. Yeah, and that is that is almost guaranteed to not be the case. Yeah, mobile is basically impossibly successful on the previous. So, yeah, so if we were like, oh yeah, we're going to keep it one touch and like really just like actually get drill it harder into the simplicity, you know, really go for that mobile audience, that'd be the dumbest. It's going to be an idle game. <laughs> <you know>? <laughs> <laughs> but also, but if we, but if, but on the, the the flip side of that, though, of course, is if if you can't play it with a pretty simple persp- you know, approach, then now it's a hard game. Right, or if you can't even play it game. on mobile because there's too many, you can't play it at all on mobile. Yep. And then also a huge swath of the audience on on original Crashlands, we know love the game because. They found it to be a chill experience. Despite all the combat and all the stuff that you're doing, the average feeling of it was like, 
this is a relaxing, pleasant way to spend my time. Yeah. So how do we capture? Yeah. Yeah. How do we make it more complex? How do we make it more complex, more interesting with the combat way more interesting while still somehow holding on to this sort of overarching vibe, uh, vibe that you're just having a good chill time. Yeah. I actually was first, for whatever reason this morning, I was, I was thinking through like, what do I really want to have happen with Crashlands 2? And I was kind of envisioning like, what I want, what I want is I want uh, uh, reviewers who who played original Crashlands to have the the consensus that like this is an amazing sequel to a mm-hmm. good game, right? Like um, the idea that w- w- what I would like lo- like to do is I would like to capture everything that's great about the original, yeah, and really understand like why that's great. And lean into those things. And make but all those also things better. Yeah, just make yeah, them better. Make everything better, but also bring in some new stuff that synergizes really well with all of those great things and just takes everything to a new level, you know? Um, so, I, yeah, I feel like this week we've kind of like landed in a much better mental space with our processes to get us closer to that and stuff. So I'm very right. excited. Yeah, whenever um, you're embarking on a good, I mean, you know, this is game dev, right? It's like we don't know what the fuck is even going to come out of the pipe at the end of the day. We don't know what the market's going to be like when we arrive. It's going to take two years. It's going to take a lot of money and time to build something like this. And so I think there's there's also the sense when you embark on something like that, that uh, at least for me, every single time, that that there must be a better way to do it than whatever we've been doing. Um, yep. Which I think is a good, it's a good approach to be, uh, you know, to have enough humility to like keep on trying to find ways to do better but but at the same time i think you know sometimes with the way we you know we'll pull in new new processes new techniques whatever else give them a try for a couple months um and sometimes it is the case that that at the end of the day you come back and you're like i'm just gonna take this little piece out of this big shift that we made and keep that and everything else actually let's do it the way we do it you know like actually we're good um yeah and so it gave me some more confidence honestly as far as just like the approach well, it's it can be, yeah. something that we have to pay attention to, which is it's extremely difficult to have your actions and beliefs in one context uh, match your actions and beliefs in another one, mm-hmm. right? And so I think this is this is a perfect example of this, and because I've been thinking about this recently. Um, uh, but for for this context, it's it's we we've always said to each other, to ourselves, and to everybody outside who listens to us, right. You cannot make plans. Plans do not work, right? We've always said this. Uh, yep. And and but we've repeatedly come up to this thing where we where we still feel like we need to do more planning, right? We also um, do make plans. We have we do make plans. plans. We have yearly yeah. plans. Like it's right. not that we don't and, make plans, and it's also not that they don't work for us, right? Well, but they also don't, right? Because like we don't follow a plan. The plan right. is actually a description of what is probably going to happen. So it's actually not it's not a plan, right? It's a it's a prediction of what we're going to do, right? It's Which is not, it's not the same thing. Yeah, it's, it's a guess. But we're good at guessing because we know we know what our priorities are. We know what our goals are. We know what it takes to like make a game and all this stuff, right? Well, so, yeah, it's, it's never the case. Like if, if we at the beginning of a quarter say, all right, what are, we, what are we going to try to do this quarter? Like what do we think is going to happen? It's never been the case that like a month into the quarter, something important comes up and then we go, well, we can't do that. That's not part of the plan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but also there isn't actually we, a plan. We just – we There's abandon, a, yeah. We well, as, as soon as something, as soon as new information comes, we kind of just like abandon what the original idea was. Yeah, but again, but there wasn't a plan anyway. Like our quarterly review, I would actually say it doesn't doesn't create a plan. It's it it creates alignment with with uh, yeah yeah with what we're trying to accomplish. Right? I guess what do you and, maybe it, 
Maybe we get to me, a plan is a, a, plan is a, a plan is a is a series of steps that are, you're supposed to execute. Mm-hmm. That's what a plan is, right? Uh, with some intended goal. Um, so, and that could be at any layer of abstraction, right? Where it's like we're going to do this so that something happens, right? Uh, to me, a thing becomes more and more a plan as you get more into the details and the steps of execution and, and like who's going to do what and like all this kind Order of stuff. Order of operations right? a lot. Order of operations, yeah. The, the plans that we do make that work are the ones that are like, we're going to make a game, right? Like that's the plan. Uh, you basically we, say like, like we use targets essentially. We, don't we use, use very high – well, I would just say we use very high-level planning. Yeah. So this is probably why like – Heist movies are so great, but you never hear about actual heists in the real world. <laughs> right. Because in the yeah. real world, you know, in a movie, they're like, here's what's going to happen. Like, Jerry, the explosives expert, is going to get in there and he's going to do this. <laughs> and then this guy's going to hide in a crate. Yeah. With, with those heists, everything has to work perfectly. Right. Yep. Everyone, everything has to go according to plan. Yeah, right. Otherwise and then, of course, work. like, uh, and also, even in a movie context, something has to go wrong because otherwise it's not interesting. Right. But of course, in the real world, as soon as you've got like three steps deep into a plan, all bets are it's off. It's just chaos now. All yeah. bets are off. <laughs> so, but this is interesting, right? Because because uh, this is what we've always said: like the, the more you focus on putting a plan together, the more you focus on like here are the precise steps, you know, and and the, and the further you project those, where you're like, here's the next ten steps, here's the next hundred steps, or whatever, right? Uh, the more you then try to adhere to that. The more fucked you're going to be, right? Because because you can't you can't possibly because you're not a, you're not adapting. Yeah, you're not adapting. So happening. that's why we as a as a studio and as a team have become very successful at making very high level plans, where it's basically like align on goals, align on what we're trying to accomplish, align on the big projects, figure out what projects are next because those are priorities, right? And then we just kind of let the projects work out organically in a way that makes sense for them, right? Um, and that works really well. But there's this conflict where we always feel like we still should be planning more, despite knowing mm-hmm. that that the more you plan, the worse the outcome gets, right? And so it's, just, it's kind of this interesting conflict. I'm going to think about this with, the, with respect to publishing, just as a concept, right? Uh, because we also are always telling everybody and ourselves that most games fail, and there's no way to predict which games will be a success. Nobody's mm-hmm. been able to do it, right? The reason that publishers are there for games is the same reason, and I'm talking about good publishers, obviously, uh, is the same reason they're there for books, which is that even for Stephen King, you still have a publisher, right? And in part, this is how the industry works for, for books, right? Which is a little bit different than games. But the question is, what are they doing? Like, what are they doing in that context, right? Uh, and the answer is there are two things, an insurance mechanism, right? Mm-hmm. And a uh, redistributor of wealth, right? That's, that's what they do. Because... They, they basically raise the floor for the things that don't succeed and they lower the ceiling for the things that do because nobody knows which of those two things are which, right? Right. <laughs> now, if you're Stephen King, without a doubt, you got a really good fucking sweetheart deal with your publisher where you just get to keep most of your money, right? Uh, but they're still taking some of but it. But they're still taking some of it. And, and they're, but also they're using your high profile to raise the profile of, of the pu- publisher. And the same with it like a Chucklefish does with mm-hmm. you know, a Stardew Valley, right? Because for Chucklefish, Stardew Valley is their hit. That's their big hit. Everything else did okay, right? Yeah. But the fact that they had a hit allowed them to redistribute wealth from that into the other titles, right? And as a single studio, uh, you, depending on what you've been doing and whether you've had an early success, you may or may not have the runway to do the same thing, right? Because what you're doing is you're, you're making games and you're trying to sell them. Sometimes it's going to work out. Sometimes it's not. The ones that work allow you to redistribute wealth into your own future success, right? Which is like, that's what we did with Crashlands. That's what we did with, with Levelhead. Um, but 
if you don't have enough time to roll the dice again, and you don't know if the next game is going to work out, you don't know what the market's going to look like when you try to launch it, then, you know, you're, you're just truly gambling. That's what's happening. And so the question is, do you want to gamble? Are, are you gambling with your own thing? Like, so, so yeah, it's, it's that, it's that, there's the inconsistency there of on the one hand, like wanting full control over what you do and wanting full ownership and wanting to capture all the upside, right? Mm-hmm. While at the same time knowing that you can't guarantee there even is an upside, right? And there probably isn't. And there probably isn't. Statistically, there probably isn't. And so this is just because I've been thinking more and more about this just kind of interesting conflict. Um, uh, and particularly because, like, I know myself personally, but also the studio has been. Uh, f- fairly anti giving up any of our rights to things, right? Which we learned in the case of Levelhead um, was we ended up not doing that for Levelhead. And that was the reason Levelhead was successful is because we actually gave some stuff up, right? Uh, and we we allowed somebody to define what the floor was going to be and kind of take away the ceiling, right? And as a consequence, Levelhead did great. Mm-hmm. And it wouldn't have yep. done as well had we not actually you know, done that, right? And so it just caused me to rethink all this. It's like, how, what is the right what is the right way to think about this that both make sense, but is also to, consistent well, with the idea that you cannot know if a game is successful and most are not. I think there I think there are ways to guess, um, but if you are an early studio, if you don't have an established IP, if you're yeah. an indie, you should as, just assume assume the worst. Just always, right? Like, yeah. assume that it's not going to go because statistically, it's it's not. Yeah, and that is um, true. I think that is it is it is fair to say that you don't you don't just not know, right? There's a question of degree. Of you're pretty confident about yeah. that it's not going to go great, and so and so, um, yeah. If you do get those opportunities to raise the floor of your success, it has so to be you, at the cost of lowering the ceiling. That's the only. It has it has to be, and so you just have to be you just have to be smart. You know, you yeah. have to be smart about like don't. Don't eliminate the ceiling. <laughs> yeah, don't give up too much, right. but also make sure right. you're not giving up too little. It's a, it's a, and, and but it's it's recognizing where you are and, and the and the remembering the reality that selling games is very hard. It's not likely to be successful, uh, and you have to take into account the full context, which is what is the market that I'm launching into? What does it look like? How good is the thing that I made? And am I am I what can I do? What do I get to leverage coming in here? Right? Do you get to leverage existing contacts and relationships with the platforms? Do you get to leverage an existing IP that already was successful, right? Uh, what is it? What does it you actually have? And you have to take all those things into account when you're identifying, like, wh- what are the realistic floors and ceilings of this thing? What is what is it okay for me to give up as a form of insurance, mm-hmm. right? Well, now I want to talk about real quick. Speaking of plans, I want to talk about what happened with Google Stadia this week. Mm, yep. Yeah. Okay. So, as some of our listeners may know, I think it was like what two years ago by now, year and a half maybe. Yeah, two GDCs ago. It was two GDCs ago that Google was like, hey, everybody, we're taking over the games industry. And they literally took over an entire floor of the convention center at GDC. Which, and they were demoing, as we complained at the time, removed all the tables so we couldn't sit anywhere, which was very frustrating. It was very frustrating. Yeah. And they were, they were talking all this marketing buzzwords like, I think they at some point said negative latency, mm-hmm. where they were like, our cloud streaming service is going to be so good. That it's going to use predictive machine learning to create negative latency so that there's literally no lag, which is, of mm-hmm. course, just absolute bullshit. <laughs> uh, so so there, there was all kinds of buzz around this thing. And at the time on the podcast, 
we were talking about it, we were we were just baffled because we were like, it's it's really impossible to tell who this is for. Because mm-hmm. the promise of Stadia was you can stream games uh, using an incredibly powerful gaming machine that is owned by Google. And so no matter what machine you have, you can play a game at like the highest settings, highest graphics, you know, all of as that stuff. As long as you have really good internet. Yeah, and you don't have to buy it, right? Yeah, and so that's the problem is is you need a really good internet connection, um, which is pretty pricey, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you need to have somebody who's interested in those kinds of games in the first place. Interested which are in AAA games. Who have played AAA games, meaning that's very likely they have already, you know, had hardware or have access to hardware. Right. And you need to not have the means to play those games yourself, right? So so we're we're like narrowing the funnel here of possible people who this who this targets. Um, but there was always this kind of conversation happening in the background around all of this streaming stuff. People saying, like, this is the future of gaming. This is the future of gaming. Because once you have this large network of reliably uh, predictable hardware all hooked together, then what becomes possible to do in games goes nuts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So good nobody could actually explain what you could do. Well, they, I mean, they, they tried to, sh- but, they did show with some demos, um, which was essentially that because you're all, everyone's actually running on the same machine, right? So multiplayer is essentially built in because it's yeah. as, as local multiplayer, but just that's streamed, you know, back to you, which is really cool. Cause I mean, that is a big deal in terms of what that opens up for, uh, for frankly, for a lot of games. Like yeah, it allows you to turn a local co-op design, a, lo- a local co-op architecture for your game into actual multiplayer. multiplayer. Yeah. Yeah. Which would be incredible for a variety of reasons we've talked about as far as how it's yeah, I mean, everything it about multiplayer over the internet is hard because you have to deal with being over the internet. But yeah. if you take that piece away, then yeah. So that's like a really huge easy. win. But then the other ones were far weirder because of how the how Stadia and how it connected to like YouTube and some other things where they're like, yeah, you could you could, for example, have a streamer who uh, played a game and then you know uh, put a video up on YouTube and you could click on the game. Okay. Like the video. And then it would just like open in stadia at that exact point or whatever. And then you could go take over. You could right? just be playing. Yeah. yeah. Which again, like sounds cool, but why it's at the, the highest yeah. level where <laughs> you're like, theoretically where, very cool. Yeah. Where you go like, Oh, cool. But then you think, what are the implications? Right. Do I want to just drop into someone's random save in Skyrim at a specific point? Like, no, mm-hmm. I ju- I just want to play play it like norm like a normal person on my yeah. own save. Well, and it's also confusing uh, what a streamer who's who a streamer's audience is, right? Because people are not watching a streamer because they're like, "Ooh, I want to play this game, and I want to find out exactly the point at which I should jump into this game." Right? They're right. they're they're watching the game. They're they're they are very specifically consuming the medium of games as a viewer, not a participant. Mm-hmm. That's the whole fucking point. So yeah. streaming, yeah. So the the stadium things, I mean. As we've talked about, has some issues from the ground up, but they were like, "We're gonna, we're gonna also start two giant studios." Like to they each said, one. "We're gonna prove it." Yeah, we're gonna prove it. We're gonna start two studios yeah. with like seventy people in each. They're led by like some of the biggest names in games, and we're gonna make some Stadia exclusives that like do the thing that we're talking about. Which and frankly it only like, makes sense. They could only happen on something like Stadia. Yeah, which does make sense as far as like you know making a a uh, basically proof of concept games. The problem, I think is the scale that they were looking at of these things. But they're clearly trying to make like, I don't even know what, just like a triple A thing. Yeah. I mean, you get, you get two teams of 70. Like that's a 
that's a big ass. You're, you're getting into AAA territory. So what but, happened um, this week, though? Yeah, well, so what happened this week? Well, I think I think one note there is too, like when Stadia first launched, they launched with 12 games, no exclusives, and all pre-existing games that you could just go play elsewhere, right? So if you had an Xbox or a PlayStation or, or whatever. Um, so the incentive to pick up Stadia at the beginning was was pretty low, and oftentimes new new platforms rely on exclusives yes. as like a means of getting people onto the platform. So think you know your Breath of the Wild for Switch and stuff like that. So Google didn't have that with Stadia, um, and then after I believe it was after the unveiling of in the launch of Stadia, that was when they announced like, oh by the way, we're going to start developing some exclusives, which is already it's like okay you kind of missed the boat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> on that one. Um, but they started that. And then this week, they announced that they were disbanding those two studios. So all, all 150, I think 150-ish people. Mm-hmm. Um, boom, gone, shut down. Um, there there may be some Stadia exclusives in the future, but they would be coming from external studios. Um, but this is, this is kind of happening a lot because Amazon is, did the same thing. You know, they got, they got yeah, their lumberyard engines yep. and they actually still have an internal game studio that's costing Amazon $500 million a year. And they haven't managed to put together a successful game. Yet. Yeah. There was actually <laughs> a really, there was a, recently a kind of a rash of articles about that, but stemming from one in particular uh, that kind of dives into like, why is Amazon floundering and Google, but they were focusing on Amazon. Why is it floundering so hard in the game space, given like how much money they have and how much money they're throwing at it and how much they seem to be indicating that games is a space that they want to get some sort of market dominance in, right? And the, the explanation, at least according to the article, is that basically like, they just brought a guy in to run it who doesn't know jack shit about games. And they just, <laughs> for whatever reason, like they just have decided this is what they're going to do. And have just refused to actually like bring in people who know about how to do things to run it. And so, so like the, the, the guy, the guy that's running the show is just like, he's just basically a rando. And so like, he has the kinds of, he has the kind of approach that you would just expect from a rando who like loves games, but knows nothing, which is like, wouldn't it be cool if this, right? On the one hand, but also like he's a business person first and foremost. So he's like, mm, too expensive. Let's not do that. Uh, let, let's do this other thing. And let's like, and like focusing just on all the wrong shit. Right. Uh, and somehow so, ending up costing $500 million. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's, it is an interesting read. I'm not sure. If you just do a little Googling, I'm sure you could find it. But uh, yeah, it's, it sounds like it's yeah. a complete shit show over there. So I, so I think kind of where we're at now is like we, we're reaching the, the tail end of, this, of the uh, hype around streaming and things are going to be ending up in a more level-headed space, you know. Well, actually, that's like, what actually, I think the, the fun thing is that my, the, like, the whole time this has been happening, Microsoft over here has just been like plodding along. Being like, oh, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna be slowly introducing some cool streaming features into our mm-hmm. stuff, right? Uh, they've just been doing it, and yeah, sure, they've been like throwing some hype around about it, but they they don't have like like games that are just that or anything like that. Well, but also been, they they get it because they're saying like, okay, maybe you're on the road and like you don't have your Xbox, mm-hmm. right? But but you you've bought a game on your Xbox, and uh, you have an Xbox controller with you. Hey, maybe you can stream it. Stream it to your stream that game to your phone and still play it with your Xbox controller or something. Um, and boom, like it's not because what they're saying is like, honestly, this isn't the best way to play a game. Yeah, it's a secondary, right? yeah, it's supplemental. <laughs> right? yeah. It's supplemental, and I think that's the that's well, the space that everybody's with, kind of landing in. Yeah, you know? well, we saw this with I can't remember what game it was, but for there was a game that came out on Switch recently. Some some big AAA title. I want to say it's Control, but that can't be right. But anyway, some some big AAA title. 
And that was that the switch couldn't handle. It was just literally like, was it Hitman? Was that what yeah, it was? Hitman yeah, the switch couldn't do it. It couldn't, it couldn't play the game, at least not all of it. Right. And so what they did was they did this like weird hybrid thing where the parts of the game that, that could work fine on the switch, you just play it on the switch, but then you would enter parts of the game that the switch couldn't handle and they would stream it to you instead. Right. Yeah. Really cool. Which is fucking cool. <laughs> that's a, and, and, that, and to me, like that's the perfect example of like where, where you can really get the benefits of those ideas is that it's almost the opposite of Stadia. Stadia said, hey, you can do things here you can do nowhere else, so come here, right? Close off your ability to sell the game to on, on any other platform, right? <laughs> Versus what they did for that for Hitman on on Nintendo is they said, oh, using streaming as a way for us to get the game into places that we couldn't otherwise get it to. It allows us to expand the market. Expand the market. Not yeah. contract it by designing around that feature, but instead to leverage that feature to allow us to make a regular ass game, right? But but make it accessible in places it otherwise wasn't. Yeah. So I think much like, you know, blockchain and VR, I think st- streaming is is a cool and interesting technology that is going to have some really cool and interesting specific use cases, but it's not going to, you know, change everything because it's incredibly rare for something to change everything. Right. Uh, All right. So before we end the episode, we got a few minutes so we can hit like a question. Probably should definitely get a question. So, all right, this question comes from our listeners over at podcast.bscotch.net. Our listener over at podcast.bscotch.net. Yeah. Our listener over at podcast.bscotch.net. Fly hoppy axe rampa says, Seth, could you please, 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 please stream while you make a game for Ludum Dare. Ooh. When's the next Ludum Dare? Uh, I, I don't know. Are you, planning, say, are you planning on doing oh, – first of all, what is Ludum Dare? Ludum Dare is a 48-hour game jam. It's online only. Um, and there have two, two tiers. So one is you can do the competitive tier where you make everything from scratch. So you got to make your own music and – art and everything do you are you allowed to use a game engine you can use game engine um although in like the 2010 to 2012 era there's a huge debate in the ludum dare community about whether that was cheating and whether you should require everybody to make their own engine in c plus plus for the jam Mm -hmm. which is stupid and i'm glad that they (laughs) i'm glad that they (laughs) allowed it so uh and then there's so for the that's for the competitive tier and for that tier you are rated by your fellow jammers um, and then there's the jam tier where the rules are a bit more loose. So you can use some like prepackaged assets or you can use things like, uh, music from, you know, external sources and things like that. Um, and the jam tier is not rated, or at least it wasn't in the, in the past. So I'm, I'm planning on doing Ludum Dare, uh, next time it happens. Um, I'll probably do it in the jam tier because I can't do music. And I think that's important to have. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so I'll probably, oh, yeah, sure. Well, sure. Why not? I'll stream it. Yeah, oh, why not? Yeah. Why not? Do it. Yeah. You got to do, uh, okay. do a long dunk, you know? That's what a stream is if you're mm-hmm. making a whole game in a weekend. A 48-hour dunk. That'll be good. Yes. Uh, all right. Well, and we can we can get one more quick question because I was, yeah, it's just like a Oh, yeah. We definitely took two minutes. Perfect. Yeah. Uh, Beaky Bapa Boop says, is there a chance we could get some new segments on the show? We've had personal news, studio news, industry news with mini segment loot box watch <laughs> and listener questions. Is it time to add some new stuff? It's a great question. If we add, we have to take away. 
So the first question is, what should we take away? We do mm. spend – we've already taken away questions without adding segments, right? Yeah. We've, so. we've, we've, we've definitely lengthened the pontification segment, which is the first yeah. 55 minutes of the episode. <laughs> That's actually the whole episode, but the pontification specifically about the industry has really kind of expanded. Yeah. Uh, cut I, that bad boy down and, you know, possible. talk about cooking instead, you know? There's the whole coffee element. Technically, there's beverages involved. Uh, maybe we should talk about how to do your, your proper beverage production. You know what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. there is. I, well, I think the important thing is is maybe we just need to do a better job of branding. You know, like because we had we had loot box watch. Yeah, why know, didn't we have streaming watch? You know, because we need we need like crypto. The crypto corner, where we talk about uh-huh. the latest thing that's not going to work in cryptocurrency, yeah, we, mm-hmm. and the, the the streaming stream. Yeah, uh, <laughs> we got like I, you know, and I've got my finance funhouse over here. What about the, the fad foyer? You know, it's a place you pass through to get to other rooms and don't care about afterwards. Yeah, well, that sort of encompasses all the other things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I think we just have to kind of take this. In stride and just, you know, mm-hmm. do a better job of oh, identifying when we have a segment and we got to name it mm-hmm. so I'm we down. can have more recurring segments. We need, we, just, we need headers. I think once we have headers, now it's a segment, you know, because then we have mm-hmm. yeah, just everything. The business now, boardroom. Now, you got to be careful with segments, though. Because uh, so I, I listened to my brother, my brother, and me a lot. Oh yeah, that fucking food segment there. Like and the- for some reason, yeah. So you know, it's it's a it's a comedy podcast where they do advice, and they're hilarious. You mean where they used to do advice? And for for whatever reason, at some point they decided that in the middle of their advice podcast, they would start doing a segment where they read press releases about about new fast food trends. <laughs> mm-hmm. And this would be like twenty of the of twenty minutes of the of the episode where they're just making jokes about like burgers and stuff. And it just was to- totally perpendicular to everything else mm-hmm. in the, in the uh, podcast. And after a while, like that segment actually kind of slowly made me lose interest <laughs> yeah. in the podcast. Uh, yeah. They keep on almost sunsetting it. Cause I've kept, I've kept listening, but, but then they still just haven't. And every time it comes up, I just skip, 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 try to get yeah. to the other, other stuff. Yeah. Cause I mean, cause the, the bits always the same, which is like, look at this weird new burrito from Taco Bell or something. Isn't that. And look weird? how out of touch the fast food industry is with reality. Yeah. 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 Uh, so, you know, we, you, you got to be careful with segments. You yeah, can get so burned. Maybe, maybe y'all should just tell us, like, what do you want less of? What do you want more of? Mm-hmm. What do you want just instead? Podcast.net. Send us, just send us your preferred ratio, you know? Yeah. It sounds like we need some kind of a, you know, some kind of feedback capability over at podcast.bscotch.net. Mm-hmm. I mean, we already just, have it, technically. Via emails and the whole questions and stuff. Yeah, you could use the question system as a feedback system. I don't care, dude. Dude, it just don't no. Be, what just I'm, don't be mean over there. Do weird things. But what I'm thinking is, you know, really, really like strip the humanity out of this thing. What you want to do is you want you want to go in there, you set up a, an account, right, and then you you rank things in the in the podcast of like how important they are to you. Then we will aggregate that data using machine learning. Okay, mm-hmm, and then mm-hmm. and then we will use that to pre-generate our 
episode formats. Here's the thing. And then that would actually be fucking awesome. <laughs> but I don't I don't have the time to do any of that. Uh, but wouldn't it be cool though? You know? No, my guess is it would end up just being a pile of garbage in the same way that most of these things. Well, no, because the question we'd be asking is like, what are people into? You know? What are you into? Yeah. And then we'd just figure you, out what are people into? And then we just kind of just rely on people to give you good answers to that question that were true. Well, no, that's why you, you don't use their answers. That's why you use machine learning. Use yeah, because machines there's, don't have souls. Or there's got to be a there's got to be a machine learning in there. Otherwise, yeah. is it really is it really technology at that some, point? Yeah, we yeah. just get some crypto. So yeah, we make now every episode is a form of cryptocurrency. Right, each episode is on the blockchain, so only one person can listen to exactly. it at a time, and they have to pass it back and forth to each other. And then, <laughs> as each person is doing it, because now it's only one person, we can easily figure out who's who's listening to it right now, and then we can have their data just streaming in. Like, when did they skip forward? When did they slow things down? When did they stop listening? Right, and then we just sort of accumulate, accumulate, accumulate. Then we take the, the machine, I think the best we take way the machine and we train it. We're like. Here's yeah. some cookies. Here's, you know, whatever. We like make it really happy about the data it's looking at. And then eventually it just tells us, here's what the people are into. Yeah. And the, the best know? way probably to get that tracking data is to require the use of an Oculus. You know, you get that. Well, I mean, then, yeah, then we got Facebook and Facebook will give us all the data we could possibly want. Yeah. Uh, so then you got, you got head tracking, you got eye tracking, you, you know, Facebook we can really tracking. tell like how attentive are people doing yeah, What happened stuff? in your body during the segment. Oh yeah. Things, yeah. Know? We could use that. Uh, yeah. We could use that Toby eye tracking software mm-hmm. and figure mm-hmm. out. Yeah. Just figure out you, how much you're looking at other things. When are your pupils dilating the most? Oh yeah. You know, that's gotta be good. Maybe. Yeah. So then, yeah, <laughs> then we can also use that software that, that schools are using to make sure you're looking at, looking at the screen. Right. Oh, so yeah. could be like, we'll only actually continue playing the podcast while you're looking at it, mm-hmm. you know? And that way we can, Continue to harvest data while it's yeah. Because if you put it away, then like we can't harvest data, and then what's the point? Yeah, and I feel like once we get you know, once we get all that stuff in, then like we'll have a pretty good sense of the kinds of things people want to hear from the podcast. Yeah, those those people who are still listening to it. Yeah, but I think the most important thing is that we don't ask. No, you know, because that's just too just use machine solution. Yeah, Yeah, we got to use machine. (laughs) So okay, so we'll start working on that, and we'll let everybody know how that goes. Uh, and that's all the time we have for this week. We'd like to thank our producers, Fat Bard and Jen Coster, for putting the podcast together. And thanks to our community moderators who keep our Discord running. To get more involved in the Butterscotch community, just go to podcast.bscotch.net, where we have links to the Discord, a way for you to donate, and links to the podcast archives. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next week. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.